I don't remember the exact details uh, of surrounding my introduction to Gregory Orr's work. I do remember that upon my first reading, I was captured. In fact, one of my favorite live performance moments ever was sitting with my friend David Dark, who's also been a guest on this podcast several times, at a reading of Gregory Orr's at Mount Holyoke College in South Hadley, Mass., and having one of those shared, when I grow up, I would like to be like that moments. I could say quite a bit about his work in order to set this up. Instead, I would like to get you directly to the interview. He reads from a most recent volume of his, Towards the Tail End, and I am so glad that he did. I think you will be too. Enjoy this. Thanks for making some time this morning. Uh, it's Actually, it's not morning for you. Are you in Virginia? Where are you talking to me from? I'm talking to you from Charlottesville, Virginia, where I live. Yeah, and you've been there since, uh, is it 1975 or so when you moved it to is. Virginia? It is. It is. But that's not, where you, that's not where you grew up, though. That's correct. No, I grew up in the Hudson Valley, rural Hudson Valley, upstate New York. Uh, when, countryside. Yeah, when, when you think of home, it's one of the one of the questions I ask most of my guests. When you think of home, I mean, you've been where you are now for a long time. When you think of home, I mean, you've been in uh, in Virginia for a long time. You, you've taught there, and then, uh, but, but you know, when you visit the Hudson Valley, do you have a sense of this place is home? This place is also home. What is what is home? Where is home for you? Yeah, um, I used to dream about the Hudson River once a month oh wow years and years so that to me would be a what you'd call a deep answer um and um i still have a a huge fondness for it Hmm. uh, for the landscape for you know it was it was formative for me yeah Uh, virginia i came here out of mm, economic necessity (laughs) okay Uh, it was a job. I, you know, a job I was, well, glad to have. Any poet that can yes. get a job, the lucky poet, at right. that level. And then, um, and you know, been, we've been here 45 years. We've raised two daughters here who were now grown and gone. So, uh, you know, this is this is part of my heart too. It's it's odd. I'm not a Virginia poet. No. And on the other hand, I'm not a New York state poet either. According, I think I've become stateless. <laughs> so many Americans must be, right? I mean, really. A little bit. You so know? how how important then is uh, is geography then, like a sense of place to to your work, uh, you know, to move for expediency's sake, to, to, to be somewhere to have a job. How important to your work as a poet is is geography is like a sense of particular place oh i'd say it's crucial even though it doesn't necessarily come into the poems i'm not a i'm not a descriptive poet for example uh but when we first came to virginia um charlottesville is itself a very small small city and we lived outside uh, the town and the countryside for maybe the first five or six years we were here. Hmm. And uh, so being in the country was really important to me. 
and and there there are ways in which uh, the Blue Ridge, which is along our western uh, horizon here, we're sort of nestled up against the Blue Ridge Mountains. Um, where I grew up, we could look out and see the Catskill Mountains across the river. Hmm. So that kind of thing of fields, uh, rural, uh, open fields and mountains, that's really important to me. I could not live in cities. I have done that, mm -hmm. but it 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 kills something in me <laughs> slowly. Do you know what, do you have a, a, a kind of like a, a guess as to what that is or some clues as to what is it about? Is it about the absence of nature? Is there something about city life and the pace of life? What is it about the city that is not good for your soul? Oh, gosh. Um, I think a sense of feeling trapped. Interesting. Uh, just uh, closed in by buildings and things and that yeah. many people. Uh, I just, I, it's its too much for me. Um even now, uh, we, we live in, in the town of Charlottesville proper, but uh, I take my dog for a walk at the edge of town in a whole set of fields and paths I can go for miles on. If, if yeah. I could, if my, if, my, if my knee felt better, I could go for miles, he said. The old man theme. But uh, <laughs> I, I just, something about that open air and breathing deeply is really important to me. It's an interesting juxtaposition because for a number of folks, maybe this this is probably a bit um, overstated, but for younger folks, the they'll move to the city because of a sense of freedom or the freedom that the city allows. You're you're talking about the the city as a place where you feel more trapped. Maybe that's a matter of age. Maybe that's a matter of preference. Well, it's hard to say. I mean, I did spend three years in New York. Um, in graduate school, uh, and you know that that is the city for me. But it was too much. It was too much. Um, where I go for a sense of freedom is poems. Hmm. Sense of you know inhabiting the landscape of language and creating a landscape out of language. I mean, I, I could do that in the city, but ultimately, uh, it would crush my spirit. The landscape of poems. Talk a little bit about the landscape of of language, uh, and as a place to be, and as as a place to inhabit. Specifically, the difference between uh, being a reader of poetry versus a writer of poetry. Talk about the, the way you might inhabit a poem as a as a poet writing a poem versus inhabiting a poet poem uh, as a reader. Is there a difference mm -hmm. for you in that experience? Sure. Well, the first thing that's totally exciting is that if you're a writer of poems, you're creating a world out of words. So it's not that you're entering the landscape that's there. You're actually creating a landscape or a world out of nothing but words. Yeah. The words that you speak and put on the page become the terms of that world. Hmm. Now, of course, if I'm a reader, what I do is I enter that world. You know, I enter, uh, you know, the supercharged landscape of Hopkins' spring and fall. 
there it is. I mean, you know, there's the landscape. It's it's uh, it's not just Hopkins walking with a little girl in the woods in fall. It's it's all that language that he creates it out of. Mm. Margaret, are you grieving over over Golden Grove on leaving? Leaves with the things of like the things of man. You with your fresh thoughts care for? Can you? Ah, as the heart grows older, it will come to such sights colder by and by, nor spare a sigh. The worlds of Wanwood leaf meal lie. Hmm. You know, and then it goes on from there. But I mean, you know, is where is that landscape? Where is Golden Grove? It's 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 there, created out of words and out of that kind of intensity of the words and the, and this situation between this kid crying at the leaves falling and, and him saying, buck up, kid. <laughs> yes. He'll get used to it. Come to such sights colder by and by, nor spare a sigh the worlds of one would leave me lie. Yes. Thank you, Father Hopkins. <laughs> there is a... himself a comeuppance there, but still. Yes, there is a softness, though. I mean, it's, it is a, it's a stern invitation but there's there's still a softness because of the form in which the invitation True. takes place and of course the beauty of it just yes and do you continue to you you have worked in uh, in the, i don't want to call it the theme because it's more it's not really a theme is it trauma it's not trauma is not really a theme trauma is a human reality and you've worked in relationship to the to to the human reality of trauma does poetry uh, as as a writer, do you find that same softness uh, as you're entering into whether this your trauma or the trauma of the world around you? Do this? Do you find that same softness? Is that part of the invitation? Is it part of what makes poetry essential to you, specifically in relationship to trauma? There's a word softness you're using that I'm I'm not going to be able to work with. Sure. Um, I don't think of trauma as a theme, but I think of it as um, as a story. Okay, as something. Uh, there is the story of trauma in someone's uh, life. What does that mean? Uh, one of the things for me that it means is that meaning itself has been challenged. Hmm. One of the things that trauma does. I mean, trauma it comes from wound, right? Yeah. One of the things that trauma does is it threatens to destroy meaning. Hmm. Uh, beyond that, it also threatens to destroy, if you're young, let's say, it threatens to destroy the very integrity of the self, the individual hmm. self who's been traumatized. So to me, the discovery of poetry was the discovery of a place where one could um, respond to trauma Poems inherently are affirmative. Even the saddest and darkest poem is somehow a kind of blessing about life hmm. because it, it affirms the existence. For one thing, it affirms the existence of the speaker of the poem. Hmm. They are the source of this language. And it also implicitly affirms uh, a reader out there who might hear those words. You know, maybe not in 
your lifetime, but someday. I mean, you have sent out this this message. What did Emily Dickinson say that her her, her poems were like messages in a bottle that she just cast out in the sea, mm. you know? Um, so trauma, uh, to me, the discovery of poetry was hugely important because trauma, I mean, rather than beating around the story, mm -hmm. uh, for me, in an autobiographical sense, uh, trauma was growing up in the countryside, upstate New York, uh, at the age of 12, um, going deer hunting with my father and three brothers. And uh, I'm 12, and my gun goes off accidentally and kills um, one of my younger brothers. And so that was, uh, you know, the announcement of the unbearable terror mm. into my life. Um, that got complicated very quickly um, that same day hmm. of horror by two things. Um, I was hiding in my room. I just, I couldn't bear anything. And uh, my mother came in and she said, it's all right, Greg, it was an accident. Okay, now there's a very interesting use of words, accident. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there is no consolation in the word accident. Hmm. It doesn't explain anything. In fact, it's just the name of terror. It's like saying, it's all right, Greg, it's just chaos. You know what I mean? It's yeah. It doesn't actually console. Okay, so there's accident. And she said, something very much like this happened to your father when he was your age. And wow. then she didn't say what that was. Oh, she said he killed a friend of his in a gun accident. Never heard about that hmm. again until 50 years later, trying to, to write my story and finding out the name of that, that person and stuff. But it terrified me. Good God. And she didn't explain anything, nor did she, unfortunately, hold me because she was, of course, traumatized herself. But then she left the room. Hmm. And and I'm kind of thinking, okay, this is an accident. Um, uh, later, uh, my father was a country doctor. Later, his nurse came in, and she brought some soup, and she said, Peter, your brother, he's he's already in heaven. He's, he's feasting there with Jesus. And... Bam, out the window went all religious consolation forever. Because every time I closed my eyes that day, I saw my brother hmm. dead at my feet. And what she was referencing was a stained glass window in our church. Uh, probably Jesus at the marriage of Cana or something. Just sort of sitting there with his hand on the table and some yes. food. And I'm thinking... That's not real. Hmm. That's not real at all. And um, this is horror. 
you know, I can't believe yeah. he's in heaven. I know he was, he's in that field. And he's in that ambulance I saw. And uh, what else happened that day? Um, I just, oh, well, the other thing was, it's all part of God's plan. Yeah. And I thought, okay, Greg kills his brother. It's part of God's plan. His father seems to have killed somebody as a kid. Hmm. Intricate plan. Uh, God is good. I must be evil. Hmm. I must be deeply evil. And of course, the only thing in a Christian background where you can put the story of a someone killing his brother is Cain and Abel. Yes. And so... Um, in the absence of any speech about what happened, I had to either sink or swim. And and yeah. what story is about is, is story is something that sustains us. Hmm. So I had the story of Cain. No problem. I'm Cain. Cain who begs to be killed by God after. God says, uh-uh. I've got a better idea. We're going to have you just inhabit the fringes of all human habitation, but never, never find rest, never find a place. And um, that'll be your punishment. Yeah. And, you know, it's a pretty dark story. This uh, that's, a hell of, that's, that's a hell of a story to enter into at 12. Hmm. And yet, bizarrely, it, it has a, Continuing protagonist, Cain goes on. Yes. I mean, he has to go on. Ugh. So anyway, you know, kids have to go on too. I mean, yeah. we, want, we want to live and survive. But but it didn't give me anything in the way of uh, uh, affirmative meaning, whereas prior to that, I'd felt as if I was a very full, you know, happy life as a kid. And so... Uh, so I entered a world, and, and of course, because this is the late 50s in America, in the Protestant, oh, I was a pretty pretty stark Protestant. It was a Dutch Reformed Church. Um, there was silence. Uh, nobody mm. spoke about it. They yeah. wanted, I mean, you know, they wanted to spare me pain. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there were two stories here. One is silence does not spare somebody no. from their suffering speaking too soon can be a mistake yeah um, that dear nurse who wanted to console me yes. prematurely her consolation was not adequate to the hurt part of what you're getting to um has to do with the role of language as um, I don't want to call it a tool, but it's uh, as an agency or an agent of or a cause of trauma that the maybe the wrong story in the wrong place, the wrong word, the wrong time. Uh, I when I lost my father to suicide a number of years ago, um, the you know, the when uh, 
one of the folks who will often show up in that scenario will be some sort of a counselor. So the police will show up, there's an mm -hmm. investigation, and one of the folks they'll send into the room is someone who's there specifically to be um, attentive to the to to survivors. And um, I, I, I stopped short of saying that she was bad at her job, but um, she spoke really soon and very, very early. And, and certainly while, while um, silence doesn't rescue us from, from our pain, I didn't want to be rescued from my pain. Like I was in the moment. This was a reality, similar situation so far as the most real thing in the world yeah. was my father's body. And I knew where it was because I found him. Like I knew that was what was real. And her language, her words, as she, I think, tried to console me, tried to provide consolation. It wasn't just that they were wrong. They didn't sound real. Like that was the thing that was real. No. This is not real. Yeah. This story you're 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 trying to invite me into of um it, I I remember only bits and pieces of what she had to say, but it didn't sound real. Can you talk a little bit about um yeah. what about, I would call premature consolation? Sure. Premature yeah. consolation. I mean, you can you know, the language is not adequate to trauma. So there has to be this silence after. And you pray that you survive that silence. And then, you know, and can you trust language again? Can you trust affirmations? Yes. Yeah. Is, is language ever sufficient in relationship to trauma? Um, like, is there a time or is there a season after, as, as like well, at some point when language becomes maybe necessary or more necessary or more healing? Talk, can you talk about that? Well, first, first, I would say that that you know that we don't need to talk about. I don't. I wouldn't talk about healing. I would talk. I mean, because that implies that then you can be healed. Interesting. Whereas a, a trauma, the wound is it's the wound of being, hmm. uh, the wound of being open for us, both you and I, traumatically and dramatically. Yes. Utterly without preparation. But the wound of being is our mortality, too, and mm -hmm. the fact that we live in an uncertain world. And uh, many people have attempted through theology and philosophy and so on and so forth to sort of make this world sound meaningful and safe. What I love is when people do it with poems and songs. Now, the mm -hmm. first time I wrote poems, the first time I felt happy uh you know it was four or five years after my brother's death and and the happiness the discovery of poetry was the discovery of escape hmm. not you know escape to some imaginary world it was you know typical adolescent escapist poetry ultimately i found that what poetry could do is it could actually circle back and address this unredeemed reality of suffering or confusion or any one of a number of things, all the kinds of uh, uh, emotional disorders. Yeah. And it can take them up into language. And 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 the language of poetry and song is, is a highly ordered, patterned language. And that pattern and ordering is itself a consolation. Yes. If you don't believe that, think about lullabies, hmm. right? Say more. I mean, yeah. 
Well, hush by, don't you cry. It, it is, isn't a cradle, the bow will break, cradle will fall, down will come baby, something and all, cradle yeah. and all. But, cradle but and all. it's so soothing. You know, you've taken in <laughs> terror and jeopardy, and yet it's become beautiful. The, the form of the thing has a consolation as opposed to the meaning of the thing. There's the, and I think this is what I'm picking up. The form of the thing provides a, um, provides a space for the story you're in or your experience of your own story, as opposed to some sort of meaning that I inject into your life that makes everything better. Absolutely. No, the, that's what, what poem, mm -hmm. lyric poem and songwriters know is that the form itself provides the consolation. sustaining and consolating you know a consolation it, it 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 and it can it can handle the most enormous disorder of human experience all the way from passionate love which yes. is frequently noted like being crazy toward you know a sudden loss and 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 death and confusion or errors of war they can't be, you know, whether they can be handled in the real world or not, who knows? But we do know that people have always turned those experiences into words yes. and then ordered those words as poem and song since time began. So the to first... me, Go ahead. Yeah, well, to me, that fact that humans have been doing that forever, kind of at, at a certain point, it, it led me to this didn't lead me to it was announced to me that there's this thing called the book you know yes. with a with a big b and that what the book is is this humongous anthology of testimony human testimony about what it is to be alive in lyric poems and songs and it's gathered from all over the world and from all time and it's just there yes as a giant human resource for us because we're not just poets and songwriters we're also readers and listeners and these these sources of poems and songs were to me more consoling than the religious uh material and interpretations that i was yeah given. i was gonna say the first of your uh, of your collections uh that i picked up i picked up um you would you had presented at um, we were at a place called Mount Holyoke, uh, and you had spoken and read at the Glen workshops. Um, and I picked up a yeah. volume of yours called "Concerning the Book That Is the Body of the Beloved," uh, which yeah. immediately fell in love with with the work, and followed your work since then. And I was joyfully scandalized by the your use of the word book. Um, it, it, you just got to now. I want you to dig in a little bit more to this. Um, uh, and I say that as someone who as someone who also writes, um, the the idea of a book can be uh, really restrictive. Like the word book, when I like I'll I'll work with authors or or poets, and they'll want to write a book, and when they say that. They have a particular framework for for what that thing is, and that framework mm -hmm. tends to, oftentimes, does kill the actual thing they're getting to. That that the they have an idea of this is a book that I want <laughs> to write, and in the effort to write the book, they actually 
slowly choke the life out of the actual work that is being born in their souls and they want to put out. When you reference the book, capital B oh, book, there's something uh, broader, deeper that the, that even the particular volume takes it takes place in the larger book. Can you, uh, uh, you just got to a tad, talk about the book. So when you're talking, you know, considering the book that is the body of the beloved, this is a little bit like the Taoist notion of, you know, if the name that can be named is not the eternal name, maybe we can't name exactly what the thing is, but talk about the book. What is the book? Sure. Sure. Well, I should, should sort of fess it up. That book you read was the beginning of really sort of, I'm going to say the second half of my life as a poet. Hmm. And it started in December 2003. I woke up and a voice in my head said, the book that is the resurrection of the body of the beloved, which is the world. And I immediately knew what that voice meant. Hmm. I knew that book was capitalized, that beloved was not. Um, I just knew what it meant. What it meant to step back from that phrase is the book to me is, as I say, this kind of secular spiritual document which is all the testimony from all of history and all cultures that we've been able to preserve in lyric poetry not epic poetry thank you which i think is about violence in lyric poetry and song and uh it's all gathered in this thing it's it's basically i call it somewhere cosmic jukebox the size of the moon i mean it's just it's 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 an ideal, but it's a real thing. How do you know it's real? Because you find poems all the time. They've fallen out of the book, or you find some little version of the book, or whatever, you know. And when you find those those poems, uh, you're exhilarated, you're reborn, you're renewed. You, it, that happens. We know that happens. Anyway, so the book, uh, it's it's um, it just hovers above the world. We add to it, we take from it. Everybody, everything we write goes into it. Whether it'll ever come out again and be seen by other people, we don't know. But we know mm. we're we're giving our poems and songs to the book, as well as to the human community. Uh, the human community isn't always there. We don't always have an audience. Many poets write like Dickinson, without hope of an audience. Or Keats, the despair of being understood and appreciated. But um, but the book is always there. The book took all their stuff, kept it, saved it for us. Hmm. Um, and um, the beloved, what happened was I heard this, this phrase, and then poems were given to me one after another for most of the morning, maybe about 30 or 40 things. The voice would just pause in the middle. Yes, this is a normal, not crazy person talking to you. But I'm speaking about hearing voices. So we have to keep those two things. <laughs> keep things in context to one another. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. He's never been confined yet. Well, 
not an asylum. Anyway, um, but I knew when the, when a poem was over and another one began and so on. Mm. That, kept, that kept up for months off yeah. and on. And, and, and uh, so we always speak about poem, things being given to us in poems. You spoke about people go wrong when they think about they want to write a book and then they've got these intentions. Well, what poets and songwriters know is that poems really are given to us and songs are given to us. We meet them halfway. Sometimes we meet them three quarters of the way, but something has been given to us, yeah. you know, and, and intention alone cannot make a book or a poem. In fact, it kills poems and it kills books. You in the know, same way, in the same way, that inspiration alone can't create a thing. There no. has to be a meeting of both. You can be inspired no. that doesn't finish the work. You also can start the work, but that doesn't get you all the way there. There is a there is a meeting, like you said. Sometimes it's a third of the way. Sure. Sometimes it's half the way. Sometimes it's three quarters of the way. But there's a meeting of those things. Sure, there's there's terrible history of bad inspired poetry. I mean, inspiration alone means nothing, as you say, but don't forget, this is 2003. I'm a 53-year-old poet at that point. I've been writing poems for, for 40 years, so I have what we call the language skills and the skills of making poems. Yeah. My The inspiration that came from me, which I can only call a gift, uh, some kind of grace, that was mm. a, a, important and palpable without it i could never have gotten it but of course i had also met it halfway with my ideas about what a poem is and so forth i will never figure out what happened but i do know some things i know that the beloved is not capitalized the beloved uh sometimes uh, uh my uh, sufi friends uh, try to harass me into becoming a sufi and say well you know there's this whole tradition of uh, of uh, God as the beloved in Sufi poetry, and and, and said, no, now you look look carefully. This beloved is with a small b. The beloved, in my experience, well, in, in my what was told told to me was the beloved is a mortal, a mortal mm -hmm. figure. Uh, it could be a certainly my first beloved was a my pet cat. Definitely mortal. Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, uh, as the people and things that we love, a tree could be a beloved. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh, but but the beloved, like us, is lives in a mortal in a mortal world. Hmm. So that means death and loss are real, which means re resurrection has to happen. Hmm. Renewal has to come back. And, you know, to me, what it, it comes back as song and poem hmm. to the book. That's one way the beloved comes back. We get what what are our laments or our praise poems except attempts to celebrate and renew and resurrect the beloved in language and imagination. Yes. And then of course, finally, the, the rest of the phrase, resurrection of the body of the beloved, which is the world. I mean, finally, the ultimate extension for me of the phrase was a recognition that the world itself as we see it, as we experience it, is, is the beloved, wow. you know, I don't know. That's what the voice said. Beautiful. That's what the voice said. I just, I just work. Well, when, when, you know, yeah. And, 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 and this thing, this selected books, the beloved is, yes. 
that's all that material. Yeah. From just these little short, simple poems. One of the practices here with some guests, I used to do with everyone, it doesn't work with everybody, is <laughs> uh, is, is kind of an investigation of uh, of a person's lexicon that that um, the language we use. You, you're, you, you've, we've talked about you know language is consolation and language is even potentially violent. That we can say the same words as the yeah. per, as another person in the room. We can mean and intend uh, those words differently. We can yes. use those words differently. Part of the value, if that's not even the exactly the way I want to say that, part of the the gift maybe of poetry is a, like a disorientation and a reorientation around the language we're using and a, and an awareness of the language we're using. So I'd like to spend a few moments, uh, if you're open to it. I'm uh, I'm just going to put a word on the table and then let you respond to that word and normally these would be words that either like you've you use regularly or or sort of surround you culturally um and when you were introduced uh at the glenn workshops uh greg uh wolf who was uh running image magazine at the time fantastic writer and an amazing curator of culture he um he used the word spiritual a number of times um, during his introduction. And the gentleman who was sitting next to me was uh, another author named David Dark. And he said aloud to me, he said, I wonder, I wonder what Gregory thinks of the word spiritual. And I've quite literally wondered that since sitting there yeah. in the Glen workshops, listening to you be introduced, hearing the word spiritual multiple times and thinking, because I'd read some of your work and thinking, I wonder where, where does that word land in his psychology? So when I say the word spiritual, what happens in you? Yeah. Um, well, since since this work began, of course, I had to come to terms with a number of different questions uh, around that, you know, that cluster of words, one of which is spiritual. Uh, I suppose ultimately religious might be hovering over somewhere. Um, and I've explained that um, religions as organized systems of belief and meaning didn't function for me, that they, they ceased to function at a sort of crucial moment and I could never, never quite restore that. Hmm. On the other hand, humans can't exist without meaning. Uh, we need meanings. We make meanings when we make songs and poems. Um, what is that if not a spiritual project? Hmm. Let me put it this way. Uh, there are two times when I've heard voices in my dreams where they were uh, voices you wouldn't enter into a conversation with. They would just, just shut up and listen. And um, in 1969, just before I was going to move to New York and study in a graduate school to become a poet or whatever that means, um, studying poetry seriously there, I had a dream in which a voice said to me, unless life is a spiritual journey, it's nothing but a coffin drifting toward death. 
And of course, I was watching a co coffin drifting on a waste of water from stage left to stage right as this voice was speaking. And, um, huh, <laughs> okay, that works. So, so there's the word spiritual sort of injected pretty powerfully, but inexplicably into my life at that point. I had no use for the word and I didn't know how to hmm. use it. But it certainly um, had plans for me, I think. <laughs> and and, uh, and the plans came to fruition with this this beloved material, That's where beautiful. I think you know the my uh, my uh, truculent inability to come to terms with conventional religious uh, doctrines uh, was uh, and they I was slipped a. Uh, a little trick and I was asked to believe in an anthology of poetry as a spiritual document. Yes. That's beautiful. And I thought, yeah. So okay, here's John Keats, one of my heroes. Please. And he's writing in a letter and he says, uh, people call this world a veil of tears. And by veil you mean valley. It's a valley of tears that we travel through to get to another world that's better. He said, I prefer to call it a veil of soul making. Wow. You know, he says, that's what we're here to create our own souls. Mm. And I kind of think, knowing this was Keats, that one of the ways that we make our souls is by writing poems and yes. song. Certainly think that's what he was doing. And again, I think of Emerson. Emerson is a, I can't call him a defrocked priest, but he, he gave up the pulpit. Yeah. He had a crisis of belief. He gave up the pulpit, but he didn't give up religious belief or spiritual belief. And he, and he, he said, what we need to become is active souls. Yes. Again, like Keats, not passive souls, not just enduring suffering. Yes. We have to have an active response to it. And that's part of what creativity is in human culture, I think. Yes. Certainly poems and songs, they're affirmations of our, our being here and intensity. So so spiritual, as long as it's as long as it's it's a, it understood to address a, ne a necessary part of human consciousness, hmm. the spiritual part. Um a place where meanings beyond our understanding exist. Beautiful. Talk about the word poem. Uh, someone might come, you've been teaching, uh, you, I, I believe you you created a, a master's in uh, a master's in creative writing at you yeah, yeah. set up a graduate program here, yeah. Um, perhaps um, someone might ask the question, what what is a poem and maybe follow that up with what makes a poem good like are there good and bad poems what is a poem and are there good or bad poems we'll only work with the first part of that question <laughs> excellent hey guys only fools go into the second fantastic um poem like a song is a decision to turn your world into words now, a poem, I don't know how songs come, but poems come, you turn your world into words. What do you need to do to do that? Give yourself permission. 
do not judge yourself. Every poet I know worth his or her soul says this, you do not judge the first draft. That's an idiot who does that because you're trying to, you're judging yourself even as you're trying to release yourself. So don't release yourself, give yourself permission. That's, if I think about teaching, one of the things I, I most think was right about it is giving people permission to put into words and put onto the page without being afraid, without judging themselves, without somebody saying, is that good or bad? Or that's nothing but self-expression said with a sneer. What does that even mean? You know, you are a self. Shouldn't you express it? So your, your poem is you've, you've just made this decision to turn the world into words or some part of your world, some part of your experience into language. And then poetry's over there and it says, hey, guess what? I've been here since the damn beginning of time. And you know what I've got? I've got lots of ordering principles for you. Which one would you like to use? Hmm. I've got rhyme. I've got, uh, I've got, uh, um, you know, I've got uh, these different forms that you could use. I've got the whole idea of story. That something begins and then develops and then ends. Wow, how's that? Don't know how to use a story? How about a list? You could make a list. Anybody can make a list. It's a form of ordering. Hmm. You know, I mean, it, it, it seems random, but it, it is a grocery list is random. But uh, a list called things I love is not going to be random. Hmm. It's going to go around and around, but it's going to say, damn, I've got to come up with an ending. And that one better be good. Right. <laughs> so it's not the form, yes. you know, even That's a random good. list is somewhere because you know, we have this sense of structure. Yeah. It's, it's in us. It's imagination. It's a shaping, structuring thing. And so we, you know, what a poem is, is, is a human effort to, to turn experience into language, shape it. And the shaping itself is meaning, even if you don't end up with a cute little moral at the end, like, you know, and therefore I know what you also know that, Life is good and not something that is bad or whatever. You know, those <laughs> neat little morals that we used to try to get at yes. the beginning, you know, when we first started out, we thought that was meaning. But the poem itself is meaning. Mm. The song itself is meaning. Yes. You know, and yeah, we extract stuff from it or we, we remember a great line or the chorus, but the poem itself is meaning. And that's a, a beautiful, mysterious thing. What does what do you do when a young poet or a poet of any sort, I suppose they don't have to be young at all, um, <laughs> says, I'm bad at this. Hmm. Bad I'm writing and I'm bad at I'm bad at this. What what do you say to someone who says, I'm bad at this? Do you want to stop? <laughs> or do you have a desire to get better? Um Guess what? You can get better. And who are you to say you're bad at it? You may mean, just mean, I don't know what I'm doing. But why should you if you're just starting out? Hmm. I mean, it's not. <laughs> I mean, how can you know what's good and what's bad? God. When I remember the way poetry was first introduced to my daughters in primary school, it, 
this breaks my heart. You know, they were just sort of really silly, weird ideas. Yes. And I certainly never learned anything in my literature classes hmm. that the teachers were saying that guided me toward the spiritual and emotional and imaginative depths that poetry contains. Uh, I think you have to feel them yourself. Hmm. I think one thing for poets when you're just starting out is, have you ever read a poem that you love or do you have any poems you love? Uh, we could start, you know, not start there, but we could keep those in mind mm -hmm. because they may, they may be models for something that you aspire to or admire. Because poetry, it's like, you know, it's like saying, you know, here's, here's, here are all these stars in the night sky. And you're pointing to one, you're saying, that's poetry. Hmm. You know, that's good poetry. No, <laughs> all those stars up there are poems. We, you know, you may decide to draw a constellation, the big what's it, whatever, you know, and call yeah. it a, a constellation. But, but in fact, someone else could draw a completely different constellation in a different part of the sky. Yes. No, we don't know that stuff. That's and, why all And those... in fact, they did. <laughs> and, <laughs> in fact, they did. and in fact, they did. It's uh, it's interesting, isn't it? It is. It's beautiful. I've... Um, I, I, like I said, I would really love. Uh, I would like for you to read some of some of this work. There is a piece um here that uh, I don't know if you you've selected. You you've got some bookmarks there. Um. The very the very first of uh of your works that I read uh that captured me is um in in this in this volume which I'm really happy to have in my hands uh is page forty nine and it begins the beloved is dead um it was the first piece that I that I read of yours um and it introduces it initially introduced me to this like I said this the 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 pieces of your lexicon that would um disorient me to words that I was very used to yeah. uh and like I said to to be joyfully scandalized by your by by what you had done um and so I'd love for you to read phrased thank you wonderfully um, phrased if because uh, I know I know you're a Christian yes and and you know and so this this is in that sense Scandalous. Yes. Wonderfully. So. It's pre-Christian resurrection. Yes. And so it's outside the well. I would outside. love for you to you, feel free to talk about Sorry. the poem. Would you mind reading that sure. piece? Of course not. Of course not. Um the beloved is dead. Limbs and all the body's miraculous parts scattered across Egypt stained with dark mud. We must find them, gather them together, bring them into a single place as an anthologist might collect all the poems that matter into a single book, the book that is the body of the beloved, which is the world. One of the things that scandalous, and to use your 
your word, would be that this is the story of Isis and Osiris. Uh, Egyptian mythology yes. would have uh, predated Christian stories about resurrection. Yes, And Isis is the wife-beloved uh, goddess of Osiris, the god. Uh, god Osiris is torn apart, dismembered, and scattered. And she gathers all the parts together and resurrects him. And uh, that's, that's, that's the story. And it seems to me that, again, we're, I guess the poem is partly saying human wholeness has been scattered by experience and by yes. suffering and confusion and everything. And somehow we have to, one of the things we do is gather it together yes. into this book. And then the book takes on the coherence of, of the body of the beloved, takes on the coherence of what we can love and celebrate. Praise. The, the language leads to, uh, uh, again, a thing you shared earlier that... Um, Rather than there being a story, we talk about one of one of the violences that that religion, particularly really bad religion, uh, perpetrates on people's souls is the notion that there is a story, and that the goal is to to come to know first and foremost that story mm -hmm. as information, to memorize that, and then to memorize that story. That mm -hmm. that ends up being really the goal to know the story. And to memorize the story, and that ends up being and to swear allegiance to it, to swear allegiance to it also, and to swear allegiance so to it as there well, can be no other story. Correct, as opposed to the invitation to participate in the story, which means then that there is a life available. That it's not a it's not a dead artifact that simply no. exists. That I then we're done, but then my active participation in in trauma and in glory, like you say about the book, it adds to, it takes from the book that there is an ongoing participation in this. And it's thing. purposeful and affirmative. Yes. Purposeful and affirmative. Yes. Beautiful. Ongoing. Ongoing. Yeah. Speaking of ongoing, I would love for you to read uh, another piece before we wrap this up. Any in particular? I picked oh, one. I it seems appropriate that you should pick the next well i'll <laughs> i'll pick one that ends up on coffee cups <laughs> my purpose has always been my my heroes have always been people like whitman and and yes. so forth the, the simplicity uh clarity and and you know that that, that the risk of simplicity is you seem stupid or simple-minded but that that doesn't bother me mm. um so this is quite simple to be alive not just the carcass but the spark that's crudely put but if we're not supposed to dance why all this music people like that it's, it's wonderful it is it is a it is uh i don't have the coffee cup but it is a it is one of my favorite pieces so thank you a company in california did put them on coffee cups and really? and i said yeah someone showed it to me 
And I said, gee, I wrote to them. I said, gee, could you send me one? <laughs> and they said, no. They took it off the. So you can buy one. We <laughs> buy one. They just denied it. That's very good. I love you. Thank you so much for your time. This was a gift to me, and I uh, I really appreciate uh, your presence and your availability. So thank you for joining me. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Etsy podcast. The volume my guest read from towards the tail end is available now. You can get it. It's very simply called Selected Books of the Beloved by Gregory Orr, or has two R's. Run out and grab that volume. Do it now. If you would also like to be one of the patrons who not only keeps this podcast afloat, but is helping this podcast move into the future, you can visit me at patreon.com backslash Justin McRoberts. We'd love to have you on the team. Until next time.